Welcome to Insight Exchange, presented by LEK Consulting, a global strategy consultancy that helps business leaders seize competitive advantage and amplify growth. Insight Exchange is our forum dedicated to the free, open, and unbiased exchange of the insights and ideas that are driving business into the future. We exchange insights with the brightest minds of the day, the most daring innovators, and the doers who are right now rebuilding the world around us. Welcome. In this episode of the podcast, we turn our attention to the skies and the imperative challenge of making sustainable aviation fuel a reality. Aviation stands as a linchpin of our global economy, fostering trade, travel and tourism, supporting millions of jobs and contributing trillions to global GDP. However, its environmental impact looms large, with around 2-3% of global CO2 emissions attributed to the sector, considering both direct and indirect effects. In a landmark move, the International Civil Aviation Organization, ICAO, has set an ambitious net zero emissions goal for the international aviation sector by 2050, necessitating a seismic shift in the industry. While a diverse range of actions are underway, sustainable aviation fuel, known as SAF, emerges as a pivotal component of the solution. Our discussion will traverse the potential of a variety of different forms of SAF, which are promising but is yet not primed to meet ICAO's strict timelines. As we untangle the intricacies of SAF and its promise, we will explore how this fuel can redefine the aviation landscape while grappling with its present-day limitations. We're joined by our experts, Jack Duckworth and Phil Meyer, building on our recent report, Fueling the Future of Aviation, making sustainable aviation feel a reality. Welcome both. As a first question, could you take a moment to introduce yourselves? Thank you very much, Luke. My name is Jack Duckworth. I'm a partner at LEK, where I work in the London Industrials Practice. Key part of the work that I do today is centres around advising our clients on the key commercial challenges that they face as they navigate their journeys through the energy transition. I have a particular focus on the chemical sector and sustainable aviation fuel in that context is a really interesting and important part of um, an area that I advise on. And thank you, Luke. Great to be here. Philip Meyer, partner at LEK, like Jack. I spend a lot of my time thinking about and helping clients work out how to commercialize new technologies. And those are likely to be a critical part of the migration through the energy transition successfully. And SAF and aviation and aerospace is obviously a critical area of hard-to-abate fuels. And you, Luke. Who are you? <laughs> Thanks, Phil. And I'm Luke. I'm an engagement manager in our London Industrials practice uh, and focused really on, on, on the world of energy from renewables to oil and gas and, and through to the exciting world of alternative fuels and the challenges of energy transition and obviously very much involved in the writing of this most recent report. So looking forward to, to the discussion. Perhaps to start out and introduce the listeners to something we spent a lot of time discussing in the case team meetings around this report. How does SAF play a role in decarbonizing air travel? Yeah, so SAF has a critical role in decarbonizing air travel because realistically in the next 25 to 30 years, there are pretty much no alternatives. Everyone has thought about and is experimenting with electrification, which might be an option for short range for smaller aircraft, but for 
civil aviation, that's going to be a big challenge. For hydrogen, that is definitely an option. There are some genuine challenges around the shape and form of an aircraft that would be able to accommodate all that space of fuel, volume of fuel. If you look at aviation, it it faces you know an almost unique challenge as a sector, and it is fundamentally very hard for the sector to abate its emissions. You know, energy dense liquid fuels are you know critical to most forms of aviation today. And while as we go forward, there may be new alternatives, you know, there's a kind of fundamental challenge of, of speed of decarbonization. So, yes, aircraft can be efficiency improved and engine improvements can be made, but fundamentally, it's difficult to deliver a lot more of those. And there aren't many new airframes coming out on which to put them. We can look to materially redesign aircraft, and that's really where a hydrogen or electric propulsion comes in. But both of those solutions are either a long way out technically or really only suitable to particular narrow segments of the aviation park. And so where that leaves you fundamentally is a large, important global infrastructure for aviation that has few near-term options to decarbonize other than finding a drop-in fuel that can immediately reduce emissions. And really, there's, there's, only, there's only one way of doing that. That is forms of sustainable aviation fuel. They are currently available. They can materially abate emissions, and they represent the only real alternative to carbon offsets in delivering material reductions in, in aviation emissions over the sort of net zero timelines. We have two basic options here. We can either use different fuels, those that, when burnt, don't pollute, or we can use less fuel. Uh, so that is getting into the realms of improving the efficiency of airframes and engines and the op operational efficiency in the environment in which those aircraft operate. And using less fuel it's a critical part of that picture. We absolutely must continue to improve the efficiency of the engines and the airframes that exist out in the market and also look at next generation uh, air traffic management systems and the like, which really do have a material impact on fuel burn. But fundamentally, we have to change the fact that kerosene when burnt in the environment releases net CO2. And the options that we have then in using different fuels is either to find a sustainable source of that chemical fuel product or look to different chemical molecules entirely. The alternatives have been and are being explored, but fundamentally these boil down to electrification, which is definitely being proven gradually with EV tolls and will work its way up to smaller, shorter range aircraft. But realistically, that is unlikely to work for large portions of the civil aviation uh, sector because of fundamental challenges around battery density. And then when you think about the alternative, which is much discussed, i.e. hydrogen, realistically that's not going to happen until circa 2050. There are technology challenges, challenges around the shape and size of the aircraft itself uh, and how that will then fits at airports. And there are also some fairly fundamental challenges to work through around the economics of running hydrogen in parallel with the existing jet fuel infrastructure, which all suggests that in the immediate term and frankly the next 10, 15, 20 years, SAF is about the only answer, the only option.
I think that's absolutely right, Phil. And then it's it's probably fair then to add to that, right, that SAF obviously is that next 10 to 15 to 20 year solution to delivering meaningful decarbonization in a pretty big part of of global emissions and kind of the the genesis of of the work we've been doing is really around this fundamental challenge that there is a, a limited amount of of cost effective SAF out there and how can the industry get going and get using it with with that challenge and that probably brings us quite quite nicely onto our our next kind of key question to think about um which really on you know my side goes to if we accept there's this sort of limited availability of of cost effective SAF, how much is this going to cost? In order to answer the question of cost, we have to know first how much is going to be needed and how much it will cost to pursue each of the technological pathways to actually produce that amount. And the scale of the challenge on the sheer volume of the requirement is, is enormous. Today, we have under a million tonnes of SAF capacity globally. And to get to the fuel blend targets of 65, 70% that are out there in the market by 2050, we're going to need in excess of 400 million tonnes. And that's a significant increase in capacity. The good news is there are a variety of, of pathways to, to get there. And there are really you know, four predominant options here. You've got uh, SAF derived from hydroprocessed esters and fatty acids, which you know we sort of commonly call heifer, and that really reflects palm oils, rapeseed oils, soy oils, used cooking oils, a whole variety of different different potential sources. But you know, fundamentally, there are quite significant constraints on the amount of that resource that's available. If you listen to those types of things, there's a variety of different calls on them. There's not necessarily that much of them in the first place. And that really constrains what we think a sort of maximum feasible production would be. Of that 400 million tons, you could probably only provide about 27 million from heifer. And then you really need to go to kind of other sort of what we sort of see as this kind of other currently available ways of, of producing SAF. And there's kind of alcohol to, to jet fuel there, which is really using kind of, you know, fundamentally alcohols or, you know, gasification, fissure tropsh processes which you know kind of collectively could probably provide another 150 million tons and really where that leads you is still still short of of half of jack's you know 400 million ton target and that's that's really where power to liquid comes in so that's you know producing hydrogen via electrolysis um and using combining that with with carbon dioxide to make you know synthetic clean fuels and that really is going to have to do the lion's share of the remaining lifting to get from you know something like 170 million tons from you know the first three solutions to get all the way up to the 400 million we're talking about and the challenges of doing that are significant while you know heifer is a a well-developed technology which you know is to some extent commercialized in the market something like power to liquid you know, really is at a much lower level of technical and commercial uh, maturity and a much more significant infrastructure will need to be built around it. Luke's exactly right. These four pathways have quite different properties in terms of their technological maturity, their, their feedstock dynamics, their environmental impact, and critically, their cost. So today, power to liquid, a pathway which is well understood in terms of the chemistry, costs six to eight times the price of kerosene and heifer 
which is as Luke said is technologically mature uh, currently costs about two to three times the prevailing cost of kerosene so a significant increment over and above the current prevailing fuel pricing which has huge implications for the overall impact this is going to have on the aviation sector if these fuel blend targets are to be met it's going to reflect structurally higher fuel pricing costs i think to build on jack's very good point about the current delta um to kerosene prices uh, often when we look at any change of this transition there's rightly a lot of optimism about how scaling these these pathways and technological improvements can drive costs down and one of the interesting things to result from our analysis is you know yes we very much see those um you know, cost benefits for new facilities. But when you look across the full stock of, you know, um, SAF producing capacity that needs to come online to deliver these targets, what you find is there's a continual migration that needs to happen to higher cost forms of SAF. So as heifer capacity runs out, you have to move more and more into P2X, which is structurally more expensive. And as you build this capacity for 400 million tons of SAF a year, a lot of it is naturally going to have to be older and going to be relying on technologies that, you know, were less mature when it was built. And as a result, you know, while we see technology as important, it's not fundamentally going to change the shape of the problem in terms of SAF cost relative to kerosene. So we only really see on a sort of aggregate blended basis the cost of production for SAF across the market coming down by about 10% relative to where it is currently when you think about the volumes that need to be delivered. And that creates a really fundamental challenge in terms of how do we bear the costs of, of SAF within the aviation sector and within society more broadly. So from our perspective, there's a kind of double-edged sword here. There are absolutely, you know, potentially the technologies and the volumes needed to deliver SAF at, at scale, but technology, unfortunately, isn't going to solve all the problems for us. And some of these cost issues are going to remain really sticky even into the 2050s. And that creates some quite profound challenges, but ones that with the right government and stakeholder action, we really firmly believe can be solved. And it's worth reflecting on quite how starkly different that is to other areas of the energy transition. If you look at what happened in solar energy between 2010 and 2020, the levelized cost of production decreased by 85%. Onshore wind energy, 40-50% over that same decade-long time period. And that dynamic just looks like it may just not be the case in sustainable aviation fuel. Yeah. And one of the critical things is in order to secure that scarce capacity that we need for SAF, we're going to need to ensure that the plants that are built relatively early on still stand a chance of generating sufficient revenue to make their economics attractive. Because if everyone, if developers fear that that's not going to happen, then that's just going to compound the existing problems around lack of capacity. I think that's a really good point, Phil, and it, it leads us on quite neatly to perhaps another, another point we we're going to raise. So I think when we kind of take that sticky cost of SAF at kind of two to three X, the current cost of kerosene, you know, our best guess was that that added something like, you know, 3.5 to 5.5 trillion to the, uh, you know, fuel cost base uh, over the next um, 30 years. And there's a really profound question about who can pay for that. So I guess, Jack, 
how do you see the different stakeholders in the in the aviation world being able to manage a, a cost increase of that magnitude? Whenever you draw up a bill of that kind, there are only a limited set of options as to who can actually pay for it in the end. And those are consumers themselves, so the passengers, the cargo people who use air travel. There are the shareholders of the aviation value chain, so some sort of margin compression decrease in their returns or funding it through uh, general taxation. So finding some mechanism to flow money into the aviation sector that, that can bear the cost of that. Those are the only option. And different countries, different nations will take different approaches as to how they will balance the needs of those three different communities. But ultimately, there's no way of seeing your way through a stable way, I think, that doesn't result in the consumers, the people who use air travel to pay a significant amount of that, notwithstanding that there is a significant role for government and the aviation sector as a whole to, to allow for that to happen. It is worth reflecting, so whenever someone quotes numbers in the order of trillions, quite what those numbers mean. So three and a half to five and a half trillion is, is an awful lot of money, and uh, it's worth drawing that against the overall estimates that people have for the for the cost of the energy transition as a whole. IEA puts it out that it's about $140 trillion to support the entire energy transition. So just supporting SAF and just within the aviation sector, that's about 3% of that total that we have just ascribed to getting SAF to, to maturity. The other point of comparison is, is against the profit pool for the aviation sector as a whole, which looks to be of the order, if you look at a gross margin performance of about five to six trillion dollars over that same period, 2022 to 2050. And what that tells me is that that amount of money can, cannot simply trivially be absorbed into the operating margins of the existing incumbents in the sector. A material amount of that, the significant majority of it, is likely to have to be borne by, by consumers. Yeah, and recognizing that fuel is, depending on what sort of airline you're operating, 20 to 30 percent of their total cost base and given margins similar percentage of total revenue that basically implies circa an 18 percent increase in ticket prices by 2050 assuming you hit a version of iata or the eu's uh, blend targets which might sound like a lot but that is over almost 30 years so it's only 0.6 0.7 increase per annum versus the alternative. And we've got to remember that in the last 18 to 24 months, airlines on both sides of the Atlantic have put up prices by 20 to 30%. And it's not obvious that consumer demand has reacted strongly negatively to that. I think that's a really good point, Phil, because I think you know, there, there's a few key points to make here. You know, as you rightly say, a sort of 18% increase in, in 30 years' time only equates to a relatively small annual increase. But I think the more sort of fundamental points are, are a fewfold. I think the kind of first is that, you know, our research, you know, suggests that there is, you know, a growing awareness among, you know, particularly business travelers, but also a subset of leisure travelers that, you know, paying for sustainable flying is is something they would find attractive and you know 26 percent you know currently say they would be willing to in some surveys would you know, be willing to pay a higher ticket price for a flight using SAF so 
there's some residual kind of near-term willingness to to pay for environmental sustainability. But the more fundamental point, I think, from a kind of policy perspective is if you look at the expected elasticities that, that Phil is referencing, there's a real merit here to, you know, airlines and regions and policies broadly moving in lockstep. And so there isn't an opportunity to arbitrage between airlines, but also clearly explaining and justifying these increases in the context of sustainable aviation fuel and the need to offset the negative impacts of, of flying. And if, if those things can be achieved, the evidence of our research would suggest that you know, the impacts on, on volume of flying would not cause a kind of major issue for the aviation sector and these costs can be absorbed by by consumers in the aviation sector in such a way that the industry continues to be a you know broadly attractive place to to invest and and to use and you can very much see some of those patterns in some of the early policy instruments coming out so for example Denmark moving to add you know measured increases in the you know taxes on uh airline fares in order to fund sustainable aviation fuel for their, their domestic flights. And those kind of lockstep initiatives that help consumers uh, to bear the cost of the externalities of flying in a sort of reasonably measured way uh, are likely to be very important in providing the financial muscle power needed to get SAF going. If you look back over the last 30 odd years, the price of fuel has varied by a factor of three. And it's been really pretty pretty volatile but if you look at the sort of corresponding impact on demand actually whilst you have had price shocks actually the impact has been pretty pretty small because generally what happens is the airlines impose some sort of set of uh, fuel surcharges which broadly means that customers have very little choice the price has gone up across the market um, but they still need to travel or want to travel. So again, I think moving in lockstep is the way that the airline industry protects itself. And that's where things like mandates can be really helpful. I think that's exactly right. So stating the willingness to pay for this exists in different forms across the different customer communities is very different from creating an environment that allows the market participants to efficiently access that, that latent willingness to pay. Phil, so you're exactly right. The, the evidence from just fuel pricing in general and the movements that that has actually provides a lot of confidence that if regulatory instruments can create a level competitive playing field, the aviation sector can move in such a way that absorbing the cost and passing the cost through of sustainable aviation fuel is doable and in the context of a growing aviation sector that has renewed license to fly. I think that's a really helpful point, Jack, and perhaps you know, a good one to, to move to the last broad theme we wanted to discuss. I mean, if we've broadly established the importance of SAF in delivering, you know, decarbonized aviation with a renewed social license to operate. And we've established that we think there is potentially sufficient volume to meet these targets and that the costs of meeting those targets could at least in theory be, be acceptably borne by the system. Why isn't it happening now? And what are the things 
different stakeholders need to do to get SAF moving? So I think if you talk to investors, both corporate as well as financial sponsors, one thing is pretty clear. To make serious progress is going to require serious amounts of investment. And to secure that at any form of scale, to get this up from, or to get this into scale up, what's required is either price certainty or volume certainty. And mandates clearly can help provide volume certainty. But I think until that gets resolved, or at least nearly resolved, with support from government, the chances of raising significant amounts of capital is pretty slim. And we are seeing some really positive movements on that front. So with Refuel EU setting out some ambitious mandates, etc. overall, as well as more of a supply side approach taken from the US, we are seeing, I think, sufficient movement on this front to start to get investment money to flow into the sector. But there is still a lot of work that needs to be done. I think that's a great, great point. Jack, and I think sort of around that, there is still an ongoing effort to create the right, you know, standards and policy environment to allow SAF to technically develop. There's a standards and policy environment around the treatment of and, and treatment of and acceptance of SAF, you know, in clean energy goals that needs to happen. And with those two things, and as Phil says, the right level of confidence around, you know, the deliverability of, of SAF mandates and potentially actions to help, uh, you know, give certainty around supply, which could be in the form of, uh, could give certainty around uh, price, which could be in the form of CFDs or other instruments we've seen uh, successfully employed in other areas of renewable uh, scale up. There are a menu of tools and options here that can give greater certainty to, to investors on the return here. You touched on the point of consistent standards which is so important there is still work to be done on arriving at a common taxonomy for what sap is what its provenance is its pathways its feedstocks and all of that requires international cooperation and is critical to enable some of this early adoption to work one of the mechanisms that is of particular interest is book and claim which allows the physical asset of SAP as a fuel to be decoupled from the environmental credential, the, the, the role that it plays in the energy transition and decarbonizing aviation, which allows, if properly constructed, a lot of the logistical challenges around transport of SAP to be overcome. But that requires such a great degree of work to be done on the nitty-gritty detail of what SAP is, its provenance. And there's some really interesting startups who are operating in this area, particularly in the blockchain arena, that are, that are starting to bring that to fruition. I think the other point which comes up here is around standards. Standards are always very important, but SAF, because aviation is so international, it is much, much more difficult to promulgate or establish and then promulgate the SAF standards in a way that for, I don't know, let's just go with Proalcool in Brazil, Brazil was able to establish a modus operandi for providing ethanol power cars and work away at that at a country level over 30 years to reduce the cost of fuel by a factor of three. But it had complete control. And in aviation, the reality is we're dealing with multiple continents, countries, jurisdictions, 
and that makes life complicated. And I think that's part of the reason that progress has probably been slower than everyone would like and possibly slower than people expected. So it's really important to remember that as well as actually just making SAF, how you make it and what you make it from really does matter. So there are well-established or now well-established measures for full life cycle emissions, which typically kerosene generates 89 grams of CO2 per megajoule, but it's quite possible to make SAF and generate well over that. Or depending on which pathway you use, you can generate a 60, 70, 80, 90% reduction in full life cycle emissions. So choices really do matter here. And if you stick with heifer, actually rapeseed and soybean are typically not as big a reduction as, uh, say, used cooking oil on a total life cycle basis. And the difference between a 20% reduction and a 70% reduction does matter from an environmental perspective, which is the point of SAF. I think as well as producing you know, a volume of SAF, the pathway really matters. So while all SAF pathways represent an improvement in carbon intensity over kerosene, there's a significant range in, in how effective they are in terms of delivering the de- decarbonization we want to see. So you know, heifer pathways you know, can deliver as little as sort of 10 to 20% when you're looking at you know, full life cycle emissions from, from soybean where you know used cooking oil could could deliver more like a, an 80 to 90 percent reduction and it's really important as people look to incentivize SAF they pick the right pathways for the deepest possible decarbonization as well as standards and providing investors with the right incentives there's a kind of fundamental infrastructure challenge as well right not just in terms of how do we create the right fueling infrastructure at airports, which is an obvious one, but also how we, what are the right places to make SAF? How do we find efficient ways to move it globally? How do we think about the aircraft stock and make sure we have the right engines in place? So there's a much broader and deeper discussion as part of this about how we ramp up the right infrastructure and the right places to make SAF a reality. I think that's exactly right, Luke. As we look to the future, 20, 30 years down the line, the role that airports are going to be playing in, in the fuel supply chain is going to have to dramatically change with them taking on more of the role of energy hubs. And for the specific challenge of SAF, there are some real challenges around where fuel blending is going to happen, how we can optimize the logistics and the supply chain around that, and how we can actually reconfigure airports to, to support these fuels at scale they will become more complex. And there are some difficult questions to answer about that. And I think, Jack, to some of your earlier points, particularly as SAF is in ramp up, we're not going to have all this infrastructure in all places at once. And there'll need to be a carefully thought out, almost global accounting system of how we match real SAF that is being deployed with you know, virtual SAF where it can't be, you know, actually loaded onto the plane, but, you know, money can still be played for its use somewhere in the system and having a robust and credible system for tracking payments for SAF and the actual use of SAF is really critical in the scale up phase as we build towards a fuller infrastructure. Which is where book and claim can really help. Exactly, Phil. To close the conversation, I'd obviously like to thank Jack and Phil for for joining me and, and sharing their expertise. 
we've obviously covered a lot of ground from, you know, why SAF is so important to aviation and its decarbonization, the different technologies that can be deployed and some of their strengths, weaknesses and costs, the ability of the system to uh, bear those costs and how that can be you know, effectively carried across the aviation sector. And then lastly, some of the key policy and infrastructure issues that, that the sector faces and, and, and how we can unlock the potential of SAF. A lot of these issues have obviously been addressed and thought about in our report, uh, Fueling the Future of Aviation, Making Sustainable Aviation Fuel a Reality, which is available on LEK's website. We are happy to provide more detailed discussions upon request, and we invite you to connect with us uh, to learn more about LEK's extensive experience in supporting around some of these issues, including the decarbonization of air travel, more on SAF, or the energy transition more broadly. Thank you, our listeners, for joining us today at the Insight Exchange, presented by LEK Consulting. Links to resources mentioned in this podcast can be found in the show notes. Please subscribe or follow for future episodes wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, we encourage you to submit your suggestions for future insights online at lek.com.